0: Good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn again to the book of Acts. Our sermon text, at least where we will begin, is found in chapter 11. That final verse that was read to you in our earlier in the service, verse 26. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 is our the text that we'll begin at. And also, and this is something uh, kind of different and new that we're that we'll be doing at least for some few weeks. Uh, I want to remind especially our kids uh, of these kids' sermon notes that are on the foyer as you, as you came in. And uh, we haven't said much about these, but these could be a really helpful way uh, for our young people to, to be engaged uh, in, our, in our services. We don't have children's church, and so we have young people in the audience with us. But I'm wondering if you're a kid or if you consider yourself to be a kid, and you don't have one of these, uh, would you just raise your hand and these gentlemen in the back, they're going to pass one out to you and that way you can get one. And, and here's one reason why I want to direct your attention to this is because um, afterwards, if you're able to f- f- uh, write on this, maybe draw a picture, there's a space for you to draw a picture here. Um, if, you draw, if you draw a picture on this and then you want to, um, you put it on the table there underneath the television screen in the foyer, we'll collect that at the end of the day and someone on our staff is going to choose one. Uh, to feature uh, in uh, this Friday's All Things Trinity and next week, okay? So if you are uh, paying close attention, listening to the sermon, and if you draw something, write something, uh, again, this is some way for you to stay engaged with what uh, we're doing here in the Word of God. And, and for the rest of you, no, we won't ask you to uh, indicate your age on this. So uh, even if we suspect that it was a grown-up that did it, we will still consider it, in the drawing uh, for those uh, ones to be featured uh, for our All Things Trinity. But again, this is just a way to, uh, to help us all stay engaged uh, with the teaching time here. Our text again, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. I'll read this verse again to us. Luke writes, referring to Barnabas, And when he had found him, that's talking about Saul, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The disciples were first called Christians. Now, what seems to be a passing comment here, the disciples were first called Christians. We are intensely interested because, whereas at that time in history, no one, or before that time in history, no one was called a Christian. Fast forward to the year 2022, if you were to Google this or look up any surveys on this, they say that there are 2.4 billion Christians in the world today. That's like a third of the world's population. And so the question that we want to know is how do we get to, in Antioch, they were first called Christians, to now 2.4 billion Christians, the world's largest religion on nearly every continent a third of the world's population. Um, How did this happen? Now this, you might expect that because so many people are considered at least from a social cultural perspective to be Christians, you might expect, well, from this point on, we should be finding the word Christian all over the Bible. After all, I've used the word Christian, Christians, Christianity many times already in this series on Acts. But you may be surprised considering the 2.4 billion number, Um, and the fact that most people in this room consider themselves to be Christians, that the word Christian occurs only three times in the Bible. You're looking at the first of three. The second time it occurs is in chapter 26. And verse 28, and the third time it occurs is in First Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. And so, what the question that we ought to be wondering is this: In light of how many people consider their, themselves to be Christians today, and in the light of the fact that this word only occurs three times in the Bible, uh, we want to wonder what what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, or another way to put it is this: What is the gap between what many people think? is meant by the word Christian and what the Bible means by the word Christian that that's what we want to want to ask this morning what does when you look at the Bible what does the Bible say is true about what it means to be a Christian. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at those three passages, the three texts in which we find the word Christian, and we're going to uh, approach them as three windows that we're going to glance through one at a time, first here in Acts chapter 11, and then in chapter 26, and then 1 Peter 4, to try to help us understand more fully what a Christian is. And just to give you a little preview, the first passage, the first window will primarily focus on the people who are called Christians. The second window is going to focus on the possibility of becoming a Christian. And the third window is going to focus on the pathway that being a Christian puts one upon. So we're going to look at what is a Christian, the people, the possibility, and the pathway that being a Christian puts you upon. So let's jump right into it. Let's look at this, addressing this question, what is a Christian? Okay, let's look at the people that are called Christians. And there's two things I want us to point out about this as you look at the text. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were called Christians, which tells us this, they didn't call themselves Christians. Never in the Bible do you find anybody calling him or herself a a Christian. That may come a surprise, surprise to you, but this was not a name they invented for themselves, nor did the early Christians even refer to themselves by the name, by the title Christian. They didn't do it. Well, then, what did they call themselves? Now, here's where we get to a very interesting study of what Luke refers to as this group, this, this newly emerging group who find their loyalty centered around Jesus. As you, as you study the book of Acts, you'll find at least five different designations for what we now call Christians, and the first one that you encounter is this uh, is brothers and sisters. So in Acts chapter 1, they, they, they call each other brothers and, and included the generic word. It could be translated siblings or brothers and sisters. So they, they think of themselves as a family. But a second very common word that Luke uses to refer to these people is, uh, is followers of the way. He says these are the followers of the way. Uh, this is what he talks about when uh, the, when Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, when he wanted to persecute the early Christians. It says he was looking for anybody who was a follower of the way. Another designation for these people—they uh, refer to themselves as servants. We find this in Acts chapter four when they are praying under intense persecution. They have a threat of, of existential extinction, and they call out to God and they call—they call, they call it to Jesus and they say, "Lord," and refer to themselves as your servants. So, so brothers and sisters, followers of the way, servants. And fourth, we have. Another designation, one of Luke's favorite, is this word believers, okay? He calls them believers. And then finally, the, the fifth that we find most common, and Luke's favorite way of referring to Christians, is this, disciples, disciples. And the word disciple has the idea of, of a, a learner, or even better, an apprentice. It's someone who has a personal relationship with someone from whom, with whom they are learning, uh, I, I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of, of uh, having lunch with some, with some plumbers. Jay and his, his crew, they had me over for a, an amazing lunch and asked me to share a, share a, a word for, uh, with, with his workers. And they were talking about we, how they became, how they came into their occupation. You know what it takes, the, the, the hours and hours it takes to, to become a, a professional plumber? I'm not going to try to use the terminology, Jay. Uh, but it, it, it comes with an apprenticeship. You have to work with somebody. I mean, I don't want someone to come to my house to fix my plumbing who tells me that they've just read a lot of books and watched YouTube videos on plumbing. I mean, I want them to have worked with a master plumber. Why? Because a trade like that requires an apprenticeship. It requires a, a, a personal observing. There are some things about that occupation and about many other occupations that cannot be learned just by downloading information into your head. They can only be learned by spending time with the master. That's what, meant, that's what is meant by the word disciple. And Luke loved to refer to Christians as disciples. Now, I've just given you a survey of these five designations for Christians before they were called Christians, what do they have in common? What do they teach us about what it means to be a Christian? Well, they all have in common this. They find their center, they find their commonality in one thing and one thing alone, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether that relationship is spoken of in terms of the the society that it creates, a family-like society, which is why they call themselves brothers and sisters, or whether that designation speaks of the relationship in terms of being owned by, being uh, indebted to a master, or whether that relationship is being spoken in terms of of having an apprenticeship or a learning relationship with this one, it all is centered around a person and that is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means most fundamentally to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We find this in the many ways in which Luke refers to these people even before they were called Christians. So, the first point that we want to under this under this first this first point that is the people who were called Christians. The first thing to know is that they did not call themselves this, they had other, there were other things by which they, they call themselves. And the second thing to know is this, that Christian was invented by people who were not. This title, this designation Christian was invented by people who were not Christians and it was probably intended to be an insult Ancient sources tell us that people uh, in the city of Antioch were really famous for coming up with clever, um, derogatory nicknames for people. Uh, one of these nicknames, not originating necessarily in, in the city of uh, Antioch, uh, was the, the nickname Herodian. Now, Herod uh, was the king at the time. Actually, there were, there were many Herods. The one ruling at the time was uh, the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, they, they were known for their cruelty, for their... Um, uh, for their insane obsession with, with protecting their own power. And anybody who, uh, who expressed an affinity or a desire for, for King Herod became contemptuously referred to as a Herodian. What, what, is, what happens when someone calls you by a name and then adds an it or an eon at the end? Like a Trumpian or a Bidenite or, or or what have you? What what are they doing? They're taking one thing that is maybe the way you voted or or someone you, you're a fan of. They're taking one thing and you're they're painting you all over with that thing. That, that's how that's how derogatory nicknames work. And so when this group of people come to Antioch and they they're talking about this this person, they refer to as the the Christ. The 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 people of Antioch says, "Oh, you Christians." It was intended to be an insult, but the reason why it took on, the reason why the the Christians, what became known as the Christians, the reason why they didn't reject this ultimately was because they were not ashamed of the name Christ. Because as they were called contemptuously, derogatorily, uh, derisively, Christians, they said, yes, that is true. He is the one that we believe. He is the one that's change, who has changed our life. Yes, paint us all over with this word Christ and we will not be ashamed of it. What was intended to be an insult became a badge of honor of their identity. We are Christians, they said. This tells us two things by way of application of what it means to be a Christian before I give you a, a concise answer to that question. First of all, being a Christian is a radically personal and completely public thing. Being a Christian is something that is radically personal and completely public. And here's what I mean. Someone who was called a Christian was called that way because they were absolutely committed in every dimension of their personal life to Jesus why is that? There, there, are, there are few things, in fact, there are very seldom things, in your, your, few things in your life that you'd want to be colored all over with. You may be a football fan, but you don't want to be known as the football guy, okay? Uh, you, may, you may love, um, I don't know, you may love a certain football player. I don't really want to say any names out loud unless I get things noisy in here. But you may love a certain football player, but you don't want to be known as that guy, right? Because there's more to you than that. But if there is someone who knows you more than you know yourself, and who, though knowing you, still loves you more than you love yourself, and if there is someone who, though knowing you and loving you, was powerful enough to give his life for you, to conquer death for you, if there was someone that knowing, that powerful, that loving, how could it not radically affect the very core of your personhood. And that's who a Christian is. It's being a Christian is a radically, that is right down to the very core, right down to the very roots. It's a radically personal thing. And because it is radically personal, it is completely public. Notice in the text it says they were called Christians. That is, people noticed this. It's not something that people were surprised about. They're like, oh, I, I wouldn't have even guessed that you loved Jesus Christ. I wouldn't have even I wouldn't have even guessed in a million years that you were loyal to this person who was crucified a, a couple decades or even just a few years ago under Pontius Pilate. No, they knew it because it so completely affected them personally, that radically affected them personally, that completely affected them publicly. People knew about it. It affected every area of their lives. A Christian is someone who trusts and follows Jesus. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who trusts and follows Jesus, and this trusting and this following is something so radically personal that it becomes completely public. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, why would someone ever be called a Christian then? And this just takes us to the next point in the next passage, and I invite you to turn to the 26th chapter of Acts. I said at the beginning that we're going to view these uh, three references, three occurrences of the word Christian as windows into which we can gaze that will answer the question for us, what is a Christian, when we find this next one in Acts chapter 26. Now, this passage brings us into a tense and dramatic scene. Uh, it's years later now, and the, the Apostle Paul is standing on trial before this uh, grand array of dignitaries. And you just get the picture here. He's in this uh, kind of like an auditorium, a, a large hall. And earlier in the chapter, uh, we read that Agrippa, verse 23, and Bernice um, came in with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So we have you have the, the, probably the mayor of the city, the aldermen, uh, the, the military, the bodyguards, uh, these people in glistening jewelry, crowns, soft flowing robes. And here in the very middle is a prematurely aging man whose back is stooped, whose body bears the scars of suffering for Jesus, his Messiah. On his hands, on his arms, are chains probably on either side of him are two Roman soldiers. Why is this man so heavily guarded? And what message does he have to say? And here is where Paul begins to give his story of how Jesus met him on his way to the city of Damascus, where he had intended to throw followers of the way into prison, whether they're men or women, so that he can exterminate this pernicious following of Jesus and stamp it out so that it would be just an unfortunate footnote in history. But he was unexpectedly met by the very one whom he thought was dead. And Paul is telling this story before these dignitaries. Now what ends up happening here is very interesting actually. So the the, the king before whom he stands you can see in verse 19 that Paul is addressing, whose name is Agrippa The king, Paul is saying to Agrippa, This is what has happened to me. This is what Jesus told me. And by the way, Agrippa, you know the prophets. And Agrippa, you know that these events were not done in the dark, musty corner. No, everybody knows about these things that happened. No one can deny the fact that the tomb that Jesus was put into three days later was empty. No one can deny the fact that the guards had to be bribed so that they would tell that the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body of Jesus. No one can deny the fact, as Paul will write later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus was seen by a group of 500 people at the same time. And suddenly, the pressure changes from, being the, from the focus being on this prisoner, it changed in the middle of this audience hall. Now the pressure changes to Agrippa himself, and he starts to feel really uncomfortable. In fact, he feels so uncomfortable that he interrupts Paul's defense because now he's feeling defensive. Agrippa himself is feeling defensive. Why is he feeling so defensive? He says in verse 24, and as he was saying, as Paul was talking, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Much learning has made you mad. Paul says in verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows About these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, now notice the audacity of this question here. It's Paul who's on trial, not Agrippa. But now Paul addresses himself to Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Now what happens next here is a sign that Agrippa is doing everything he can to get out of this uncomfortable question. He says this, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's, it's almost like this. Festus tries two things to get out of this. Uh, sorry, Agrippa try, tries two things to get out of this. First of all, he, he calls Paul mad. He says, Paul, you're insane. He tries to laugh it off as if he's a madman, and when that doesn't work, Paul looks at him with earnestness and says, no, no, I'm not insane, and you know this. I do not bear the marks of a person out of his mind, but you yourself, you know that the prophets have prophesied that one would come, suffer, rise again for the salvation of his people, and you know that the events that happened in the past few years have confirmed this. I know you know this. What does he do next? He asks a question not for information, but to try to dismiss this. Oh, oh, I know what you're doing. Are you going to try to convince me to be a Christian? Here's what's going on here. King Agrippa feels cornered. He feels cornered by what he knows about three things. First, the scripture. The scripture said it was going to happen. Second, the events themselves. And third, his own heart. Otherwise, he wouldn't be taking this so personally. What is happening here is we are seeing the possibility of someone becoming a Christian by being confronted not with a new moral standard, although being a Christian does affect your morals, but someone being confronted by the truth about who Jesus of Nazareth is based on the fact that he rose from the dead. That means that he must be the Messiah. That means that he must be the Savior, which means something for every individual. That means that that no one can get out of this conclusion. No one can escape this conclusion. If indeed it is true that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, that means that you have a choice about him. Either you go on rejecting him or you trust in him and follow him which is what it means to become a Christian. (laughs) And Paul's response is this, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We've seen the people who are Christians they're called disciples, followers of the way, brothers and sisters, believers, servants of Christ. We see the possibility of becoming a Christian. That is believing based on the fact that Jesus now is alive and because he's alive, he must be the God-anointed king that will save, that, that it comes to save people. But why do we talk about this so much? I mean, why, why do, week after week, is this, is this new to you? I'm very aware that whenever I preach, people fall into one of three categories. Either you are moving toward Christianity, learning about what it is, understanding more fully, or you accept the Christian faith and you know yourself to be a Christian and you are seeking to understand more fully what it means to live as a Christian or I'm very aware of this too, that there are some people that are moving away from Christianity. There's some people who, and it could be you, that you're thinking, I don't know that this is something I believe. In recent years, there has been it seems like there's just been a slew of of, and I referred to this a couple of weeks ago, this idea of deconversion, especially among people that have risen to prominence in Christian circles. They've they've written books. They've uh, they've, they've spoken, they've been pastors, they've been, they've been influencers in the Christian scene, and, and then they come out with this, uh, with this statement, I don't consider myself to be a Christian anymore. If indeed a Christian is someone who, because they understand Jesus to have risen from the dead, and thus that person, Jesus, is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, if that's what a Christian is, then what does it mean to not what does it mean to move away from Christianity? What, I, what I'm deeply concerned about is that what people are moving away from wasn't Christianity to begin with. It wasn't even it wasn't even essential to the faith. Maybe it was maybe it was Christians who hurt them. Maybe it was some skewed caricature of the Christian faith. Maybe it was a lot of misapplications of Christian standards. Maybe it was just some sort of idea that if you embrace this level of morality, then you're a Christian. If you live this way, this way, then you're a Christian. I spoke, I've spoken to people who say, I, I think that what a Christian means is doing your best to, to obey the Ten Commandments and live by the Bible. But that's not what the Bible says. When Jesus comes preaching the gospel, he said, repent not reform he says repent because the kingdom of god has drawn near he said christianity the christian message is not a matter of you trying to climb the ladder rung after rung so that you could achieve some sort of standing before god it's that god has come to you and if and, and are you is that what you're moving away from to use a very lame and homespun illustration about cheese Let me just try to to make this come alive for you. If you told me at some point, that's it, I'm done with cheese. I don't want to eat cheese anymore. I'm done with that. I would be very curious to check your refrigerator and see what's in there. Is it really cheese? Because I love cheese. I can't see how anybody wouldn't love cheese. Now, what if someone says, I'm done with cheese, no more cheese for me, and I go into your refrigerator, let me just check this out and open, I see can after can of cheese Whiz in there. Now, if you don't know what cheese Whiz is, you're really not mu- missing much, but it's just this kind of like canned, like fluffy, sort of <laughs> manufactured stuff. And I'll be like, I- I, before you say you're done with cheese, let, let me go down to Market Basket and get you a, a block of Cabot cheese and, and put it on a cracker, and let me j- just, just taste this, Okay. Now, maybe you're not into that kind of cheese. Maybe it's something else. But but let me tell you, don't reject something based on a false understanding of what it is. Don't say, I'm not going to have anything more to do with that unless you know what you are walking away from. And this is what I would plead to anybody who's considering walking away from Christianity. Do you know what you're walking away from? Young person, teenager, young adult, you've grown up in Christianity. Do you know what you believed? Is your Christian faith, is it a faith that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God who has lived a perfect life, died on a Roman cross, and then he really rose from the dead, and and that means that he is the the fulfillment of all all God's promises, and that means for you that you must must commit your life to him. Is that what you understand by Christianity? If that's what you understand by Christianity, my, my friend, be careful. Be careful what you're walking away from could be walking away from the Lord of the universe, I believe with all my heart that the Christian faith is sturdy enough to sustain your most difficult questions and tough enough to live by, to suffer by, and yes, to even die for. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who trusts and follows Jesus. How does a person become a Christian? By trusting Jesus. Now, the third occurrence of the word Christian comes in a context which wouldn't shouldn't surprise you. And I'm going to tell you what it is in just a moment. It shouldn't surprise you and I'll ask you to turn there it's at 1st Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. It shouldn't surprise you because There's already been hints of it leading up to this. I'll give you the hints, and you see if you could guess the context. What issue is being dealt with in the final occurrence of the word Christian? To begin with, the word Christian itself was coined in an attempt to insult the followers of Jesus. Second, the second occurrence of the word Christian was given in the book of Acts, was given in a context in which a follower of Jesus was in chains and was going to be beheaded, according to church history, in a few years from then. You know what the context is? The context in which we read the final word, the final occurrence of the word Christian is a context of suffering. Suffering. I'll begin with verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see the context in which the final occurrence of the word Christian occurs, it's in a context of suffering and that should come of no no surprise to us because that has been the implicit context of the other two occurrences as well. Now the question I want to ask and I'll answer in just a moment is why does being a Christian put you on a path of suffering? Why does being a Christian put you on a path of suffering? And after just a a moment ago of trying to appeal to people to not leave the Christian faith or encourage people in the Christian faith, now why am I talking about suffering as being wound up with the Christian faith? I want to take you to, uh, you don't need to turn anywhere, I'm just going to direct your attention to the first time we we encounter the word Christian outside of the Bible. The first time that we encounter the word Christian outside the Bible, it comes from about the, the year 114, AD 114. And it is the great Roman historian Tacitus. And he's writing about an event that happened 50 years prior, the year 64. In the city of Rome, considered to be the eternal city, there are plumes of black smoke Billowing from the city. Hundreds of homes and businesses burnt to the ground. Families fleeing to the countryside for safety. Nearly two-thirds of the city of Rome decimated because of the conflagration. But people suspected that it wasn't not just a, oops, knocked a lantern over and it's a little start, started a fire or a little trash fire, got out of hand. No, people suspected that there was more to it than this. People suspected, and it was widely rumored, that Nero, who was the emperor at the time, had purposely started the fire. And and this gets back to Nero. And, And what Nero does, Nero knows that he cannot smother the rumor that the fire has been deliberately started. But he thinks he can redirect the rumor toward someone else, an escape goat. And who do you think he chose as a scapegoat? Tacitus tells us. He writes about this event 15 years later. He says, To get rid of this rumor, Nero set up as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. First occurrence outside the Bible that the word Christian, uh, we find the word Christian, and it's in the context of suffering he goes on to explain Christus, from whom their name is derived, and it's significant that he has to explain this because he assumes that most of his readers are not yet familiar with this movement. Christus, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And notice, uh, Tacitus is not sympathetic to the Christian movement. He's not sympathetic to Rome. He's not sympathetic to Nero. He's not sympathetic to Christians. He, he's just kind of a cranky guy. He's not on anyone's side, which kind of builds his credit as, a, as, a, as an objective historian, but he says, he says he was executed, checked for a moment. He's referring to Christianity. This pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Does that remind you of the plot of Acts beginning in Jerusalem to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world, Tacitus tells us, but even in Rome, and he refers to Rome as that receptacle for everything that is sordid and degrading from every corner of the globe. Every context in which the word Christian occurs, the, the times in Scripture, as well as the first time outside of Scripture, is in the context of suffering. Why? Why is Christianity associated with suffering? Because... A person who claims allegiance to Jesus and the, a person who commits their life to following Jesus is committing their lives to following one who suffered, to following a one who was a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. What it means to be a Christian, it does mean to suffer in unique ways. Being a Christian, Christian suffering, and I'll put it this way, is uniquely grueling and uniquely glorious. It's being a, suffering as a Christian, it's uniquely grueling because as a Christian, you are invited into a new way of looking at things. You, you no longer can be dismissive of your sin, you see it for what it is. You you no longer can see this world as just a, a, a random uh, a place in which chaos reigns. No, you see the world as a place that is rebelling against the God whom you love. Your your optimism, your hope has has just burst through the ceiling, uh, you expect there to be and you pray and long your kingdom come. I mean, talk about setting yourself up for great suffering to have such enormous expectations and such high goals for yourself. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we groan inwardly. Why? Because we know that this present existence is not the existence that God has intended. We long for something more. We long for our our lives, our efforts, Ethics our morals to be reflecting of the morals and ethics and a life of the Jesus whom we are following. But so often we fall short and the world around us falls short. And so, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Christians are those who, have, who suffer in unique ways, not in spite of the fact that we follow Jesus, but because our life is yoked to His. But... Christian suffering is also uniquely glorious. And it's glorious for this reason. It's glorious for this reason. Jesus' suffering proved that there can be a kind of suffering that is not pointless. Jesus' suffering proved that there is a loving God who orchestrates all suffering for his good purposes Isn't that what was the nature of Jesus' suffering? Isn't that why Peter explains in great depth the suffering of Jesus? Look at chapter 3 and verse 18. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking? My suffering is not pointless. My suffering as a Christian is under the kind sovereignty and providence of a God who even though it sometimes works in mysterious ways, nonetheless is moving me toward greater Christ likeness. That's why although Christian suffering is uniquely grueling, it is also uniquely glorious and it is the glory that awaits us that makes the suffering, as Paul puts it, not worth comparing to the glory that is to reveal to us. It's because we, you, my friend, you can have the confidence that in your suffering, in your suffering, God is making you something that otherwise you could not be. In our suffering, we follow Jesus who but because of his glorious resurrection proves that all suffering for the Christian is guided and controlled by the loving good hand of God. There is a man who wrote a book that has become at least up until recent times the second most printed book in the English language, next to the Bible. but his was a life of intense suffering. As a teenager, he lost his sister and mother almost simultaneously. He was drafted into the army. After he was married, his first daughter was born blind. Shortly thereafter, after he had his, his wife had bore him four children. His, his first wife died, leaving those four children with him. He married again. Shortly after he remarried, his second wife was pregnant and he was imprisoned and he stayed there for 12 years. This man's name is John Bunyan and he gave us the book Pilgrim's Progress. But he also wrote another book called Advice to Sufferers. I'm going to read to you a quotation from that book. He takes his text, he's commenting on verse 19 of chapter 4. So if you look at 1 Peter 4, look at verse 19 that says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this man, who is no stranger to suffering, said this, It is not what enemies want, nor what they are resolved upon, but what God wills and what God appoints that shall be done. And as no enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise, so no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. We shall or shall not suffer even as it pleaseth God. God has appointed who shall suffer. Suffering comes not by chance, not by the will of man, But by the will and appointment of God. John Bunyan knew what it was to feed on unseen things, to live by faith, even while languishing in the Bedford prison. And he knew, I think to a degree that we we often fail to grasp, that living as a Christian means living a life, yes, of suffering, but that is uniquely glorious because it is guided by the hand of a good God. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who trusts and follows Jesus through suffering into glory. Would you bow your heads with me? While your heads are bowed, I think it would be great for us to spend some time thinking and praying. I'll speak to you just a moment and then I'll, I'll give some time, a, a time of silence to, to pray on your own. Um, it could be, my friend, that you you are not a Christian. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, but you are beginning to understand what it truly means. If that's true of you, I would love to have a chance to talk with you after this this service. You don't have to wait to talk with me though. you can cry out to the Lord right now as your as your savior. or it could be that you are, Thinking about walking away from this and realizing, wait, I, I don't know that i know that I'm, I don't know what I'm walking away from, and you're discovering that for the first time. Or it could be that you know that you are trusting and following Jesus as a Christian, but you are suffering. My friend, your suffering is not alone. Your suffering has a purpose because it is, it is knit, it is yoked with the suffering of Jesus. Would you take some time to just pray this back to God? Father I pray that the song that we're going to sing would truly be the prayer and cry of our heart I pray for anyone in this room who is like King Agrippa trying to wriggle out of of the the logic of the gospel I pray that that person whoever he or she is would surrender to what you are doing in their lives and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Father, may all of us who gladly bear the name Christian, may we live like Christ and for Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen. I invite Jake